0: Join us for our free online webinar on how to apply this amazing process to your gardens and fruit trees. Visit urbanfarm.org to sign up. That's urbanfarm.org. Do you want to save money at the grocery store? Eat more organic, whole foods? Cultivate food security and feel more connected to the earth? If so, then growing your own food is a no-brainer. You wouldn't believe how many people come to me claiming that they can't grow their own food
1: With you every step of the way, here's your host, Greg Peterson.
0: Today on the Urban Farm Podcast, we have Kanan Rautzen to talk about his experience with apple tree diversity. Kanan has devoted his life to heritage apple tree diversity. In the pursuit of apple knowledge, Kanan has researched apple varieties from historic homesteads across Arizona, New Mexico, Colorado, and Utah. During his research, he documented 34 known apple varieties and 110 unique apple trees of unknown origin. He has collected and propagated unique varieties of heritage trees from numerous small homestead orchards in northern Arizona, as well as Capitol Reef National Park and the historic Philmont Scout Ranch and Chase Ranches in New Mexico. This research and further research on wild apple genetic diversity has led Canan to complete a master's degree at Northern Arizona University and a Ph.D., congratulations, at the University of Arizona. Canan's most recent project is co-founding Arizona Cider, a local hard cider company based out of Prescott, Arizona. This project involves all steps of the cider production process, including the pressing, fermentation, aging, and blending of the cider, as well as propagation of unique Southwest heritage apple trees and over 100 French, English, German, and American varieties of apples. Arizona Cider will have cider available in the spring of 2018. Welcome to the show today, Kanan.
2: Hello, I am excited to be here.
0: And I am excited to have you, given my fruit tree background. So, I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at now?
2: Certainly. I was homeschooled growing up, and I grew up on a small farm in rural Arizona, about 30 miles north of Prescott, Arizona. And in that area, we, my parents, like I said, they had a small farm, and we grew a number of different fruit crops. But we were in a very cold valley, and we had late spring freezing issues, so we would get apples and peaches and plums once every, well, apples maybe two or three years, and peaches I think twice when I was growing up. Wow. And they were, they were a, a huge treat. Uh-huh. And so, because of that, I started like from a pretty early age being very aware of the old homestead fruit tree apple orchards mm-hmm. in, in the area that might be in microclimates that would have fruit when our parents didn't have fruit. So, I think that really, put me on the track in a pretty early age of being interested in apples and fruit crops. And yes, from there pretty much went to, through undergraduate degrees. And, and during that at Prescott College was studying the Oh nice. The historic apple trees of the Prescott Southwest area. And right. about what I was able to do there was preserve them through grafting them on the young, young rootstock to preserve uh, the varieties. Nice. And and then for my master's degree I got to thinking, okay, I know that there's a bunch of historic trees growing around, but what I don't know is are those um, 20th century red delicious, golden delicious, Jonathan, 20th century heirloom apples that are still widely available, Mm -hmm. or am I actually grafting and preserving um, unique southwest apple varieties? Mm -hmm. And so I started, I looked into and figured out how to use genetic fingerprinting, and we can talk about that later. Oh, yes, Um, we will okay as to to identify these old historic trees and then i was still interested in apples so (laughs) i decided to get my phd (laughs) wow but my professors couldn't didn't couldn't come up with what they call a phd level question for historic apples so that's when i branched out from studying just southwest apples into studying the broader genetics in apples like the I was looking at wild apples and population genetics in a native apple species and that was the Pacific crab apple which grows California, Oregon, Washington and the coast.
0: Oh interesting. Interesting. And that grows
2: wild. It's a native apple and it's about the size of a pea. (laughs) The fruit are very, very tiny. Yeah. But and they they're very, very tart. The Native Americans use them quite widely but they would let them overripen in a process that in persimmons and medlars and some other fruits, oh, is called bletting where they, they overripen and then they, they become a jam, essentially a fruit oh, jam on the tree.
0: Oh, interesting. So. Interesting. So yeah. I have an, I have an interesting question for you. Okay. Uh, this, this uh, person that we know of as Johnny Appleseed was a real person, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And so my question kind of revolves around that. We have a tremendous apple diversity in this country.
2: Yes. Is there a connection? There is a connection. And the connection, I guess the connection is don't think of Johnny Appleseed as one person, although he was one person. Ah. But he was one person of a nation of people. And this, essentially we had, there are four native apples in the United States, in, the nor- in North America. Uh-huh. And they're all very small crab apples. There's three Eastern ones. So I'm, I'm going pretty far back here, but I will tie it back around. <laughs> there's Belis fusca on the West Coast, and then there's Coronaria, Ionensis, and, well, I'm not going to remember the other one. That's all right. But anyway, they, they're native apples that are very small and they're used by Native Americans, but they weren't what we consider eating apples. Uh-huh. All, of, all of the apples that we consider eating apples were brought to the New World by pioneers, pioneers, I guess you could say, yeah. yes. And those English, mostly English at the time, but also French, um, Spanish, etc. cetera, apples were not well adapted to the new world. And I'm finding that, which we can get to later in my grafting of cider apple trees. A lot of those uh, European varieties do not do very well here.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And so people brought these apple trees here and the original trees may not have done very well, but they were planting many, many seeds. And that was, you know, another mechanism of, we can't just fly, you could not fly across the ocean back then, you had to take a ship for months exactly. and months. Exactly, right. <laughs> so bringing a tree was very costly and expensive, and bringing apple seeds was very cheap. So you had, from A, the trees were not well adapted, B, getting the trees here was difficult, you had a lot of seedling apples being planted. Uh-huh. And then we also had that in the Homesteading Act, and there were, I'm sure, many versions of that, but at one period in time to homestead attractive land in the West or Midwest at the time, homesteaders were required to plant an orchard. One of the mechanisms Uh, of proving history or proving history of their ownership of the land so they could get title to it. Right, exactly. And they, there was talk about somewhere in the neighborhood of 50 apple or pear trees to create this orchard. And so most Homesteaders were not wealthy people. They could not afford to buy 50 um, grafted apple trees, but they could afford to plant 50 seeds and right. or hundreds of seeds. And that's where Johnny Appleseed comes in. It's, he was moving to those new towns that needed, where people needed orchards and they needed apple trees. And he was taking the uh. seeds, the pomace is what it's called when you have an, a press, the pressed juice from apples. Right. The leftover pressings is called pomace, uh-huh. and that is a mixture of apple pulp and apple seeds. Oh. And that you pretty much you were, that's where most of the apple seeds in the early times would have come from is from these cider mills. Got it. So most of the these apple seedlings were mm-hmm. not going to be necessarily delicious eating apples like you and I think of when we think of store bought apples. But right. We're probably a more primitive form of apple that. A good friend of mine, Tom Burford, is an apple researcher on the East Coast, and he refers to them as spitters, and spitters are exactly what it sounds like. You bite into this roadside seedling apple, and you're going to spit it right back out because it's either not very sweet or extremely right. acidic or tastes very bland. Yeah. Um, so they weren't planning them for eating. They were planning them for land ownership, and they were planning them for cider. Cider was a big deal in this country in their early homesteading period because... Right. I, Access to fresh water was hard to come by, and and there was a lot of I guess before we had our modern sewer systems and our modern water treatment facilities, water could be a very contaminated source. And yep. drinking drinking a slightly alcoholic cider would be a safe way to go. Safe way to go, and yeah. maybe a, maybe a good way to go. I don't know. Maybe people were feeling pretty good back then.
0: <laughs> so the so the genetic diversity came from planting all these different. Seeds from the pomace, and coming up with just this genetic roulette, essentially of all kinds of apples.
2: Precisely. So apples have what's referred to as forced outcrossing. They're um, to get a slightly technical term here. They have what's called high heterozygosity, and that's very similar to humans. Uh, um, they can't pollinate themselves, <laughs> so oh. they have they they have to pollinate with other people. They have or I mean sorry, other apples. They have what's called a we got self it. okay, a self incompatibility yep. gene where an apple flower cannot pollinate itself. So that forces every single seed is going to be a different unique variety. Right. And so when you're planting in the case of this country, tens of millions of apple seeds mm-hmm. from that you're going to have just an incredible array of incredible diversity of apples coming out of that.
0: Cool. So, before we jump into the Southwest, I want to know, what is one cool Apple story from, from Pioneer Times forward?
2: How about the Rhode Island greening apple? That's a very interesting apple. Okay, they, go. It, okay, It came out of Rhode Island in, we're going to have to Google the exact time period. but Oh, that's okay. Okay. Early, early, early 1800s. Okay. And it was identified as this... In somebody's yard the seedling apple variety that just tasted wonderful and was quickly spread around the Rhode Island area and then became I guess widely popular throughout the nation and what is it now 200 years later probably uh-huh. I'm I was I'm still finding Rhode Island greening apples in home, historic homesteads here in the southwest
0: in the southwest
2: yes and it's a wow. it's a what's called a triploid apple it has it's a I guess a genetic term. It has a second set of chromosomes attached <laughs> in the genetics, so it's a it's self-compatible and produces sterile pollen. So oh. that doesn't it means it's not a good pollinating apple. Right. But it, exactly. for some yes, for some reason, triploid apples produce larger fruit than normal and more I don't know desirable fruit. I'm not sure yeah. what the or, term That's is okay. there, but they're pretty tart. They're an excellent cooking apple. And still, when you find them in historic orchards, you're like, wow, this is, or I'm like, wow, this is a really good apple. I bet it's a...
0: <laughs> now, were they grafted back then? They had to have been grafted back then.
2: Yes. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Grafting has been around since the Roman times. It's been around a very long time.
0: Oh, interesting. So one of these days, I'm going to have you back to the show to talk about that. Because okay. w- with your list of things that we can talk about today, we won't get to that. And I'd really like to know about grafting. Okay. Excellent. So... History of apple cultivation in the Southwest. Obviously, they were done for for cider mills, right? Yes. And how do these historic orchards in the Southwest reflect history around here?
2: Okay, so the Southwest has a slightly different story than the Johnny Appleseed story. Okay. Although, although the Johnny Appleseed story ties into it, uh huh. The Southwest, we really have. I guess the Spanish were the big influence in the Southwest from a very early time period. Right. So here in the Southwest, we had, you know, Apache Wars. We had just very harsh conditions for self, for settlers to establish. But we still, we had as early as 1629 i believe mm-hmm. this Francis, uh, franciscan missionary named alonso de Be- uh, I mean butcher's name exactly. benavides <laughs> alonso de benavides was writing from new mexico and talking about the, the introduction of peaches apricots plums and i believe even apples at that point wow. and those and those would have come from spain probably through the canary islands across to mexico city and up the Comuna real in the you know, early 1600s, many hundreds of years before we had Western settlement from uh, the East, East Coast. Mm-hmm. And I'll have another quote here. And this is from, I'm going to butcher his name also, Jos- Josiah Gregg in 1830. He was a botanical explorer and merchant. And he was passing through Santa Fe, New Mexico in 1830. And he quotes the... Settlements were very thickly interspersed with vineyards and cornfields. The orchards were planted with apples, peaches, and apricots, and all seedlings, and all wretchedly poor. The the grapes from Spain were delicious. Mm. And so that's talking about seedling apples and seedling fruit trees in the southwest very early before, I guess, genetic material or fruit trees would have been brought across, say, on the Santa Fe Trail.
0: So you said seedlings. That means not grafted
2: that means not grafted. Yeah. Yes. So that's those would have been s- apple seeds brought from Mexico City or even Spain uh-huh. up the Santa Fe Trail and then traded out either planted in Hispanic villages or mm-hmm. traded out to the Native Americans. Interesting. All right, cool. Yeah, and so and then by, you know, the mid 19th century, we had the Santa Fe Trail opening up corridor into the Southwest and you have a lot of settlement from the East Coast coming out here, bringing with them you know, the Johnny Appleseed story. And we're kind of on the fringes of that. Yeah. I would say that a lot of the varieties that I'm fine. I find in historic orchards probably were not seedlings from that time period. They're probably more grafted trees coming out of this melting pot of apple diversity from the Midwest. So we're very much on the fringe of that, but these orchards still, they still tell that story. Interesting. And then later on, and this is, there was an, a pretty still widely known nursery called Stark Brothers Trees. Uh-huh. But they started they were very, very popular in the late 19th, early twentieth centuries.
0: And so this, is one late, of, this is late 1800s then.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yes. Up into the like nineteen thirties, nineteen forties, that time period, Stark Brothers had an incredible influence in the Southwest. And that is in part because one of the Stark brothers, and I don't <laughs> I don't know their names, but I think it was—I believe it was Clarence Stark. Anyway, he had a, a respiratory issue where he was told by his doctor to move out to the dry climes of the mm-hmm, West. Right. And I think they were based out of Denver. Um, don't quote me on these exact things, but <laughs> anyway, there they were. They became an influence in the Southwest and mm-hmm. marketing, marketing, you know, grafted fruit trees into the Southwest. So a lot of the um, heritage orchards from the 19 19- 30s, 1920s and 1940s jumping around a little bit there but those would have been a good chance those were stark brothers brothers trees interesting yeah and
0: they're still around
2: obviously yes both the orchards both these historic orchards and stark brothers yeah, they're exactly. all still around
0: <laughs> so differences between primitive orchards kitchen garden orchards and commercial orchards i wouldn't even have thought to have asked that question so you sent that one over tell me about that
2: yes okay so okay so primitive orchards really refer to the early early American homestead orchards and those would have been seedling trees those would have been Johnny Appleseed type orchards right and you can tell them because people they grazed livestock under these trees and what that means is that they had a different pruning style and we'll, you know I'll, I'll explain the differences but in a modern orchard or even Yes, a modern any kind of orchard. The the limbs usually come from, start at about three feet or less off the ground. All oh, right, where you you start branching your limbs. Right. So if you have li- if you have livestock in those orchards, in which everybody had livestock in their orchards, you could not start your limbs that low because the livestock rub them off. You're, you you really don't see limbs starting until about six feet off the ground. Right, and they're full standard, big, giant, mature trees, and probably seedling, mm-hmm. although some of the some of the later ones were grafted, and then. Kitchen garden orchards are what we would refer to now as the backyard orchard. When you had a homestead or, yeah, let's say a homestead, you would have the kitchen garden, which would supply the family, the house with fresh fruit and vegetables. Mm -hmm. And then you would have your cider orchard, which would be a much larger orchard of probably seedling trees out in the field. But as we discussed, seedling apples are pretty bad for, generally bad for fresh eating and so, around the homestead or around the house, he would have a smaller orchard of specialty varieties mm-hmm. that they that they care they treated the trees much better than they treated their cider orchard, mm. and they probably paid a lot more money for them. And they also would have a diversity of apples in those orchards because this is many of these homesteads predate modern electricity and modern cold storage, and they could not go to the nearest grocery store to get. Right, an, app, an apple from Chile. They had to grow, <laughs> they had to grow their own fruit. So, there are what are called summer apples, and those are apples that ripen incredibly early in the summer. And then most of the apples that we know of are um, standard fall apples. They ripen anywhere from August to maybe mid October. And there are winter apples, and winter apples are very dense, very hard apples that won't ripen until November or later. Right, but they will keep. They will keep until spring of the next year. Uh... So between your summer apples, your fall apples and your winter apples, you could have apples pretty much year round from right one homestead. And then they Yeah. And then they had different uses for apples. So you have your fresh eating apples and you also have your cooking apples and you have your drying apples and you have your, you know, an apple specific <laughs> for apple pie, or you have All a right. specific cider apple. So these kitchen garden orchards, I guess, are incredibly diverse mm-hmm. and incredible sources of agricultural or apple in this case diversity and then you get into your commercial orchard yeah and i'm sure i would hope that everybody has a pretty good idea of what happens in commercial situations but the basic premise is that for commercial production Uh apples have to your entire apple orchard pretty much has to ripen at a very uniform time so you can for the economy of picking it right And then the apple has to be able to withstand getting from the orchard to cold storage and then eventually to market. And it has Mm -hmm. to – there's a whole lot of physical abuse, you could say, I guess, that the apple will go through between harvest and sale in the market. And it has to look very pretty at the market. So if there were 100,000 apples that were delicious to eat in 1890 – there's just a very, very small handful of apples of those apples that met the criteria of ripening uniformly, withstanding shipping, still looking pretty right. at the store. Yeah. And as I said, or in the last things that I said, none of that was how the apple tastes. <laughs> right. <laughs> because people buy the apple and then find out that it might not be the best apple. But at that point, they've already gotten it.
0: So. Yeah, exactly.
2: The, so, how an apple tasted didn't really fall into that.
0: So we have this. With Johnny Appleseed and uh-huh. you know this we have this tremendous diversity of in apple varieties. why do we want such a high diversity?
2: well, there you can answer that question from a variety of different angles and one probably one of the biggest ones would be the reason we want genetic variation is for or disease disease issues mm. and climate variability mm-hmm. If we have one apple planted over the entire world, and we're, we're not quite that bad, <laughs> we have 11 apples accounting for 90% of commercial apple production. Wow, Those 11 apple varieties are pretty much all interrelated to each other. <laughs> yeah. What If you get one disease, one insect, pest, whatever, that figures out how to eat that apple, then you're looking at the entire world apple supply being at risk. If for some reason we have something called climate variability or increasing climate variability, maybe man-made caused, maybe not. Right. But probably man-made caused. Yeah. Anyway, that <laughs> that <laughs> that could you could see some slight climate shifts that make it our standard eleven apple varieties, not very resilient Viable to anymore. I like that word yeah, resilient, yeah. To our future climate conditions. So in the wild apple, in the world of wild apples, there is so so much genetic variability that has the ability, we hope has the ability, to adapt to future climate variabilities and disease issues. From a social perspective, the apple is just so much more than what you can find in the store. There are really absolutely amazing apple varieties that you would never be able to encounter in the store just because they don't ship very well. Right. And they might not look beautiful. They might look pretty ugly. <laughs> yeah. There's an apple known as the knobby russet. That So russeting, as in russet potatoes, is kind of that it's a rough texture on the surface. And right. apples can get that rough texture. Uh-huh. And the knobby russet is supposedly, I've not actually tried it yet. I have some growing, but they're not quite old enough to produce. a incredibly misshapen apple that's very russeted on the surface. Very rough and misshapen. But it's supposedly delicious. So... Mm-hmm. You would never probably sell that at the store, and so you'd never have commercial right. growers growing that. Right.
0: Cool. So you had mentioned something in the intro about DNA and using DNA to identify apple varieties, and that kind of piqued my interest. So I want to I want to kind of know about that.
2: Okay. So there are, I guess, backing up a step in the time period that i was interested in my research for the historic orchards in the southwest say the mid to late 19th century mid to late 1800s up to about 1950 there were literally thousands reports of up to 14,000 apple varieties being grown in the united states during that time period wow and that's epic it's epic, That's and epic. if you if you think about apple varieties, okay, you've got round, you've got you know elliptical and various shapes, <laughs> rough shapes between round and cylindrical, and you've got a color range from yellow to red to green to very dark red, almost black. But there's just a finite uh, variation that the, an apple will take physically, and so trying to identify an apple using old um, reference books. Um, William Henry Reagan wrote one of the classic ones, mm-hmm. Nomenclature of the Apple in 1930. And it's literally like, it looks like an Excel spreadsheet, although it predated Excel spreadsheets. And yeah. it gives a name of an apple, you know, a whole list of apples and a very small amount of information. And it might be a round green apple that's um, late ripening. Mm-hmm. And there might be two or three hundred apples that meet that description. So <laughs> At least. <laughs> at least, exactly. So trying to identify apples using nomenclature is pretty challenging. It's very, it's something that I've not figured out how to do. Now there are apple experts in the country, John Bunker being a great one up in Maine and Fedco trees Mm -hmm. who, who can take an apple and pretty quickly classify it into probables and possibles. And if it's a modern or historic standard historic variety, he can identify it like, you know, like with a snap of a fingers, he knows it, he Mm -hmm. knows it cold, Uh but me coming from an area in the southwest where I was not actually exposed to that many varieties growing up, and our homestead trees, you know I, we I didn't know the names of them. i I cannot do that. Right. <laughs> and I imagine most people cannot do that. So I took a more of a scientific approach, and that is using um, DNA. And so DNA, I guess it's very similar to forensic DNA where you're trying to identify. Pretty much it takes forever to sequence the entire genome and it's very expensive, but right. you don't need to do that to be able to differentiate between individuals. You just need to look at very specific sections of the mm-hmm. genome and then compare those same So same genes, I guess, between individuals and because of heterozygosity, you will inherit certain genes from your mom and certain genes from your dad or an apple tree is the exact same thing, same way, certain genes right. from the pollen and certain genes from the mother. And those genes will be, essentially passed on in certain patterns that you can look at what well what i did is basically took apple leaves and got and ground them up to extract the dna Uh and then ran them through what's called pcr and that amplifies when you put a primer in to to look at a certain uh, section of the genome that will amplify that gene and i did that through what are called microsatellites and they're That's a technical term, I guess, but it's essentially a way to create a genetic fingerprint. And then you run those out on a gel or the modern – I was using gel back in the day. This is in 2009. I did the study. Back in the day, you said. Back in the day. (laughs) Things have progressed light years, I'm sure, since then. But we were still running them out on gels back then. And basically, you're just – at each gene, you're recording whether the apple has – 100 base pairs at that gene location or 182, so a slightly different gene at that location. And yeah, you record for the seven genes that I was looking at, and they'll be both, if it's diploid, it'll have two sets of chromosomes. So you're looking at 14 possible genes. You're just comparing hmm. one individual to another. And I went through Stark Brothers Nursery Catalogs, and I went through the USDA. also had um, Agriculture Experiment Stations, in the Southwest, kind of in the time period I was interested in, where they were introducing apple varieties for testing. And so I found those from the lists of varieties that they introduced, and from Stark Brothers catalogs, they came up with a list of known varieties that should have been introduced to the Southwest, Uh found those varieties, ground up leaves from their DNA, or whatever, ground up their leaves, extracted DNA, and then had a a reference library, essentially, of genetic fingerprints of known varieties. And then I could compare the unknown hmm. fingerprints to the known fingerprints, and from that,
0: from that you get genetic
2: markers. Yeah. Ah, cool. Yeah, and Excellent. I want uh, yes, and I, I just want to briefly say that that was done at the USDA National Center for Genetic Resources Preservation in Fort Collins, Colorado. I didn't have the genetic resources to do it myself, so yeah. <laughs> it was done in a big lab with the help of science, some scientists that do that type of work.
0: Well, cool. You know, this is uh, one of the reasons that I've got my master's and I've always wanted to go back and get my Ph.D. So I can, you know, probably not do what you did Uh or anything close (laughs) to what you did. But, you know, do dig in. That's what that's what I loved about my master's degree is I got to dig in and study one thing. Mm, Yes. So that's uh, maybe one day I'll go back and get a get a Ph.D. Why are apples essential trees for our urban farms?
2: Well, that's, I guess, that's a theoretical question, but I will be happy to argue it. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I you have see, a PhD, this is what we do. I can see arguing either side of that question, but I definitely like apples. And I, I guess I feel that apples are a very rich source of enjoyment uh-huh. and a source of food. And they're very iconic to our American culture. Mm-hmm. And really, a lot of cultures around the world, but specifically here in America. So you, they're an excellent source of food. They're an excellent source of beverages. Oh, yeah. <laughs> if you like apple cider or fresher or hard. So they're widely diverse in what we can do with them. And they're widely diverse. They, can, they grow apples from the tropical regions all the way up to uh, Fairbanks, Alaska. So, well, yeah. Cool. Siberia.
1: Cool.
2: So we can grow them almost
0: anywhere. And, and they stay on the tree a long time, don't they?
2: They do, and that's a little bit varietal specific. There are certain apples that will be on the tree till next year, and certain apples that will fall pretty quickly. But depending on your variety, yes, they're very versatile.
0: Wow, cool! So you've started this project called Arizona Cider. Yes. Why? And and, you know, like, what's what's the process? You know, what's your timeline? What's your process? What's that look like? Because I'm. I would like to be there on opening day when we get to take our first sip
2: of, of the cider in the spring of 18, uh, 2018. So, okay, absolutely. I hope you are there. So pretty much I've been interested in apples for a very, very, very long time. Mm-hmm. And I've been researching apples for a very, very, very long time. And then I graduated and needed a real job. And I don't know if you could call my job a real job. I work as a biological research scientist, but it's very far from apples. And so, I am trying to get back into having apples a bigger part of my life. Like in academia, apples were central, and Uh for my work right now, apples are the farthest thing from central. I'm chasing desert tortoises around the Mojave Desert, or right, you know, looking for rare plants in the mountains. And so, I, I feel that cider is a growing industry, and I feel that it is a a way that farmers can make potentially make money through as a value-added product for apple trees. And that's what we're experimenting doing. And the basic process is I have a bunch of historic trees that I've been planting, pretty much planting every year since I started my senior project at Prescott College Uh and then for sure during my master's. And so I have a lot of trees that are from 10 years old down to maybe two years old, all heritage, Southwest apple varieties. And I've also been recently collecting um, as you said in the intro, French, English, and American cider apple varieties that are specific cider apple varieties. And that's, if you think of wine as an analogy, there are table grapes and there are wine grapes. And mm. table grapes are great for eating. They're crisp and they're full of sugar, but they don't have a lot of polyphenols and they don't have a lot of tannin, both of which are essential in making a very good beverage. Uh-huh. And wine grapes are very high in polyphenols and tannins. And the same Fresh eating apples are pretty low. They're high in sugar, but low in interesting compounds. Like Once you ferment apple juice out to alcohol, the yeast eats all of the sugar. And so you're left with with whatever is left in the apple. And if it's Mm -hmm. a cider apple, you have polyphenols, you have tannins, much higher acidity than the standard eating Mm, apple. And so you you have complexity. And so we're growing these apples. And then the next step, I guess, is to press the juice out of them and pitch yeast on them there are a lot of historic historically they used wild yeast they just press the juice and let nature happen right and the problem with doing that is you can sometimes end up with a beverage that's not wonderful Mm -hmm. (laughs) that's a long way from being even drinkable right and if we're trying to make you know a, a product that people will love and especially in today's day and age where we have a pretty high standard of what a good beverage is then we're using commercial wine yeast is actually what we're using. It'll be very similar to a white wine making process where we're controlling temperature and temperature, high temperature promotes bacteria growth and bacteria growth is vinegar and lactic acid bacteria, which are great in fermented foods, but they produce lactic acid, not alcohol. Yeah. (laughs) You know, we don't want them in cider. We want yeast in cider. Exactly. And so we're, we're controlling the apple varieties, trying to get very interesting crab apple type things, cider apple type things, and then heritage apples to get interesting juice. We're pitching them with wine yeasts. that will produce hopefully good flavors. And we're controlling the temperature to around 55 degrees. And that will promote the yeast and um, reduce the bacteria. And yeast at cold temperatures will produce a lot of, your fruity esters is what they're called, but oh, they're nice. like the fruit, the fruity flavors. When you drink a white wine or a cider, those all come from, most of those come from the yeast. Hmm. Some of them in the apple, most of the yeast. Yeah. And most of those are produced at a cooler temperature. So fermentation is wow. a science and an art. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, I'm and sure. then you will have, yeah, like a, so fermentation typically takes around three weeks, possibly plus or minus, And then there'll be what's called a maturation period where you, you think of, Red wine is aged. Aging, yes. Aging. And that allows flavors to mellow and develop and you have when really green cider is what it's called when it's straight, pretty much straight fermented three weeks into it. Uh It tastes very yeasty. And so the kind of the yeasty flavors will mellow and disappear and you'll have more of the fruity aromas coming out. So curious. Yes. So yes, so that's kind of our cider making process up till you know, bottling and then selling. Right now, we're working on our website and our business and all those yeah. <laughs> things that we didn't learn about in uh, academia because we were scientists. And I was just, when I say we, it's my brother and I doing this project. So.
0: Nice. Nice. So yeah. it just occurred to me, if you're going to have cider in the spring of 18, that's a year from now. Uh-huh. That means you're growing the apples. So you, your apple
2: crop from 2017 is going to make that, right? Yes. And, well... I don't have enough. Depends on how much cider we'll be able to make. I'm not going to be able to grow all of the apples that uh-huh. I that, that we'll want for our cider, and so we will be <laughs> we'll probably be knocking on doors with everybody with apple orchards hoping to pick apples to
0: pick apples. Yeah, exactly. And
2: if that if we don't get enough there, then we're going to be looking at Wilcox probably. To oh yeah, well, some well, of the larger commercial know, growers. Yeah.
0: Still, they still Arizona. How many how many pounds of apples do you imagine you're going to grow this year?
2: Well, and that's a good question. We didn't measure them last year. We ended up with 50 gallons of apple juice. And wow. if it's two and a half gallons per bushel and a bushel is 40 pounds, I'm not going to be able to do the math in yeah, my okay. head. Yeah, that's but... okay. I was just curious. <laughs> I'm hoping just... to get 500 or so hundred pounds of apples probably off my trees wow. this year. and Nice. Then, yeah. Are you excited? Oh, I'm very excited. This is like
0: an epic (laughs) moment when you're actually to the point, because when you said spring of 18, spring of 18 seems so far away and it does, and we're going to sneeze and it'll be here. Right. Right. It's, it seems so far away. But then when I started thinking about it, hold on, I started doing the, doing the kind of the, uh, stepping back from it. And it's like, Oh, those are the apples you're going to grow this spring and summer and fall.
2: Right. Exactly. And we are, you know, we are quickly getting our space into, our space is pretty much ready. It's on my parents, on our parents' farm, and it's a farm kitchen that we've got up to county health code levels. And nice. We're still working, the county is still, we're still working on our permitting process. Yeah. We have our we have our federal license, and we, all right. State, you need a, yeah, you need a
0: federal license for the alcohol, right?
2: You do, and you need a state license, and our state license will depend on the county. So we're oh, just yeah. waiting to get all the help the hearing and the zoning Yay. and all that stuff. So but I, yes.
0: So I want you back in a year to talk specifically about this. Once you're once we're ready to taste apple cider, maybe I'll bring our equipment up there and we'll just sit up there and drink apple cider
2: and have this conversation. And that would be really, really fun. And I'd be, be stoked to have you on. Yeah. Cool. Cool. <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. Well I'm going to shift on you and I want you to talk about a time you failed, how you overcame that fare and what you might have learned from it.
2: Okay. I guess I'm going to answer this with two things. And they're not so much epic life failures, but That's they, all right. were, <laughs> they were learning experiences for sure. And one of them is learning how to graft was a huge challenge for me, and it took me a long time trying to learn by, on myself. I pretty much I made maybe two or three successful grafts, and this was probably during my teenage years. And then when I was at my during my senior project at Prescott College, we actually found a this very old man named Tom Devupovich who's since passed away, but he had a master's in horticulture from the Ukraine or Yugoslavia or somewhere. Oh my gosh. Somewhere back there. The old country. Yep. And his claim to fame was that he could graft a thousand apple trees in a day.
0: Holy shamoles.
2: Okay. He knows how to graft.
0: Yeah. No kidding.
2: And he taught us how to graft. And so it was kind of like, I was unsuccessful before he taught us and successful after. And it was pretty much just in the technique, the sharp, clean tools and yep. yeah. So I don't know what I wasn't doing right before, but wow. <laughs> and the other thing is being mostly self-taught with my orcharding. A lot of my young trees early on, I had what was called an M7 rootstock, which is a semi-dwarf. Very standard commercial rootstock, but uh-huh. it wasn't entirely self-supporting, and I didn't know that. Mm. So and so, it
0: hold the trees up. Is that what the deal is?
2: Yes. Yeah, so dwarfing rootstocks control the. Okay, so yeah, very briefly, you have full size trees which are grown from seed, which are large, twenty-foot-tall trees. Right. And then all the way down to dwarf trees, and what controls dwarf trees? What controls the height in an apple tree is the rootstock, mm-hmm. and it's the rootstock is either very vigorous, like a standard size tree, or very um, compact, n- n- compact, non-vigorous. Yeah. <laughs> the root, this root system will not support a large tree, so a large tree doesn't grow. But those those dwarfing trees often are not self-supporting, so if you don't stake them, they will fall over. Oh, and interesting. So I, I didn't stake my trees; they were semi-dwarf, and a lot of them kind of are pretty it, leaning. It fell over. <laughs> And they're still that way, and they'll be that way for the rest of their lives. Yeah. You know. So, so that's a that's a, something that reminds me every time I'm in the orchard. It's like,
0: oh, right. Nice. <laughs> well, that's a, you know, like, that's what this is why I asked that question because this is you know, it's just a learning process. Life is a learning process, and when we fail, those are opportunities to learn.
2: Yep. So and yeah, in yeah. the case of leaning apple trees, they remind me every day. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, what do you consider your biggest success? Well, I have a couple of those. And one of them is learning how to graft was probably one of my biggest successes in preserving apple diversity or in preserving historic trees. Like without grafting, I couldn't do a lot. And then once I did learn how to graft, it basically opened a huge door for me from, and for anybody. If when I'm buying trees from a nursery at 20 or $30 a piece, when rootstock is available for, you know, right, depends on how many you buy, but in the neighborhood of, 60 cents to $1.20 a piece, the amount of the affordability of growing trees and the ability to grow whatever I want to basically increased exponentially at that yeah. point. And the second one I would say is probably my network. Mm. And that's that for me, in terms of accessing varieties, in terms of learning how, in this case, to make cider or how to propagate trees, pretty much I've learned everything through knowing. Knowing people and asking people. Yeah. So I feel I guess my network is probably well, you know, a <laughs> success.
0: Perfect case in point is your uh, friend from the old country that taught you how to graft.
2: Yep. Exactly.
0: Yeah. I had uh, I had a very very wonderful mentor. He was uh, he was sixty years my senior that wow. I, that I learned a lot from and you know I can't say enough about having great mentors. That's yeah yay.
2: So what drives you? Well, I'm very passionate about a whole lot of different subjects in the world. Mm-hmm. And my to-do list is probably longer than my life is long. Yeah, I got one of those, understand. <laughs> and so I think in that in combination with, I fo- try to focus on taking really good care of my health, eating very clean, very healthy foods and exercising. So I have pretty good at high energy level. Yeah. So I guess that in combination with, Wanting to do a whole lot of things in life is probably the sum total of that question. Yeah.
0: <laughs> cool. So I'm all about education. And I have to know: is there a book that has been influential for you in this process in your life?
2: Sure. There's been whatever, probably hundreds of books, and. I- I'm going to actually even just cite a chapter, and that is Michael Poland from 2002, The Botany of Desire. Oh my God. The chapter on apples. The chapter on apples was incredibly influential in my work. Yes.
0: Uh (laughs) Is that the one you were going to call out?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And another one that was, I'm also going to cite The Man Who Planted Trees. Oh my God, of course. By Gene Giano in 1953. Yeah. That was kind of pretty much a childhood hero. And then I was pretty heartbroken when I figured out it was not a true story. Oh. But it's still a very worth reading that story. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
0: So what one final piece of advice do you have for our listeners?
2: Well, I think that people should plant trees. (laughs) (laughs) I wholeheartedly (laughs) agree on that one. Um. I would say learn how to propagate your own trees. Not all trees need grafting, but it just op- if you learn some simple techniques in propagating trees, it really opens up your opportunities and your ability to preserve agricultural diversity. Yeah. So become a fruit explorer. That's um one of my favorite things is going out to historic orchards or going out to other people's orchards than just in the fall when there's fruit on the trees and just tasting what is available, What's what, available. what exists yeah. out there. Yeah. And then having the ability to take, you know, to repropagate that to my own farm and my own orchard is pretty awesome. And I highly recommend other people do that.
0: Yay. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the show and sharing your experiences with us today, Kanan. It has been a treat getting to chat with you. Likewise. And this has been a fun talk.
2: Nice. So how can our listeners get a hold of you? Well, in the future, there will be ArizonaCider.com. (laughs) Uh-huh. (laughs) <laughs> and the, and probably social media, but we haven't, we haven't got quite gotten there. So probably the easiest way is through email, and that would be my first and last names at gmail.com, all scrunched together. Got it. Yeah. Perfect.
0: And you can find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org backslash azcider. Well, that's it for today. Thanks for joining us on the Urban Farm Podcast. And start growing delicious, nutritious food for your family. Just text GARDEN to 44222 or go to IWANTtogarden.com and you will receive our free webinar about the seven key factors you need to know to grow your own food. Remember, that's GARDEN to 44222 or IWANTtogarden.com.